as of right now, even though there's been a large volume of stupidity that happened in the government that is trying to regulate and they're clearly being written up by people who don't understand this technology, open source AI is going to win and innovation will win and that will be good for abundance creation overall. Universities, professors were the authorities on knowledge. Specialists and various were the authorities on knowledge. Since the internet came in, they've been being bypassed, but artificial intelligence was like the kill shot. Who needs them anymore? You know, who, who needs them? AI can be your mentor, you can be the apprentice, but just imagine, and that's something that can be done right now by, by learning how to think and speak this new language mm -hmm. and, and create six-figure opportunities as entrepreneurs. And I believe the greatest mechanism, the, the international language of peace is entrepreneurship. Hi everybody, it's Dan Sullivan here and I'm here with Mike Koenix and this is Capability Amplifier. And um, we feel so amplified in our capability that we're going to make some predictions about, we're right in the first week of January. So we're making predictions about the whole year of 2024. Okay, and uh, we know we'll be held accountable for everything we say today, but um, on the other hand, if things turn out the way we say they are, you're going to be so busy with other stuff that you won't even remember what we said. Well, so here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to each, Dan and I are going to make a prediction for this coming year. And I think the best predictions are the ones that not only come true, but stay true for the long haul or are the beginning of a significant trend. And um, they offer opportunity, not just financial opportunity, but growth opportunity, mindset opportunity, a shift in consciousness opportunity. And um, the other thing that I told Dan when we got started is anything is fair game here. So I'll give you, if it's okay, I'll give you my first uh, prediction, which is already in motion, motion, but it's super important because this past year has been all about AI. And what we saw is the fastest growth of any platform in human history. Um, a lot of that was from OpenAI and ChatGPT and um, how it affected so many industries so quickly. And for example, it's, it has and is completely revolutionizing uh, the creation of media, um, our ability to create any kind of content, our ability to learn and store information. But here's the prediction that we're already seeing evidence of, which is what makes an AI work is something called a large language model. That's just basically grabbing a whole bunch of information and storing it. And the EU started some regulatory practices, as did the United States. And most people who I think have wisdom agree that this industry, this business is too early to regulate too soon. And that is a danger to innovation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one great thing, and this is really my prediction that's happened is 
Uh, large language models are effectively open source, meaning there are thousands and thousands of them, just as Meta started open sourcing their technology, Google started open sourcing their technology, many other companies did as well. And what that means is this thing's impossible to regulate. Mm-hmm. And those that regulate the most are going to be the most screwed fastest. And mm-hmm. for example, China, which has no choice because of the way they operate to regulate their population. Um, They've got social credits and they are inserting all sorts of tools that are going to prevent their systems from being able to communicate, share information and share truth effectively. And AI, and this is something you brought up a while ago, Dan, is for the most part, it's an English driven new language. And um, it, we won't. I won't necessarily say United States is responsible for all the development. But what's important is because it's English speaking and it's primarily U.S. based. And as of right now, um, even though there's been a large volume of stupidity that happened in the government um, that tr- is trying to regulate, and they're clearly being written up by people who don't understand this technology. Um, open source AI is going to win and innovation will win. And that will be good for abundance creation overall. And yes, some bad things will happen as a result of this. Um, But overall, I believe that the right kind of people who think the right way are making the most forward momentum fastest. And um, in the end, we are going to see massive transformations. And we talked about this in our last episode, medicine, in energy, in transportation. Everything you talk about in MELT um, is going to be amplified and multiplied because of AI. And I, for one, will raise my hand as a delusional, optimistic entrepreneur and say, I'm super excited. I'm more excited about our future now than I ever have been. And I'm looking forward to a more abundant 2024 than 2023 because of it. So that's my number one is open source is here. It's great. And the less regulation, the better. And I don't think they can regulate this beast. And that's basically what the prediction is. No, I think all the horses uh, left the barn a long time ago (laughs) on this one. <clears throat> but the 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 whole thing is new horses are being created on the run, you know. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, um, if you go back, <clears throat> my my history goes back to just the beginning of my interest in computers, goes back to the introduction of the term microchip in 1974, 73. <clears throat> And uh, I, I read a whole series of articles, one in particular from the New York Times. And I, uh, you know, you cut out the article and you read it. It wasn't uh, downloading it. And uh, and I, I remember it uh, fell apart, the article. I had it folded and I opened it and read it. And it said two things, that this is going to be the remark- most remarkable technology ever created, number one. Number two was it's a technology that will be applied to all existing technologies. And uh, it'll be applied to itself to make even more powerful microchips. And that uh, large bureaucratic organizations are going to have a hard time um, 
adjusting to the changes that are being made and that there's going to be a massive increase in the number of entrepreneurial professions there can be and the different kinds of entrepreneurial companies. And I would say that prediction in 1973, 50 years later, is absolutely correct. But this is a new jump for microchip-enabled technology. Yes. Okay. And uh, I would say <clears throat> that this is a new form of knowledge that can be applied to any existing form of knowledge, and that it's much more democratic than the microchip. And the reason is because um, um, a critical mass has been reached where you've got so many people doing it that there's no way of even measuring how many people are doing it and what they're doing with it and why they're doing it with. And so I think we're into um, Evan Ryan, uh, who's a free zone, free zone member along with uh, the two of us. Yep. Uh, um, calls it exponential tinkering. I like that. I That's like a great that. name. And yes. I was going back to the automobile industry and, um, you know, the automobile industry actually, I mean, we think of the, you know, Henry Ford and we think of GM 19 teens and 1920s, but actually the automobile industry actually began in, uh, in, uh, you know, the 1880s with the invention of the diesel engine in Germany. And, um, and, uh, <clears throat> You know, in the by 1910, there were about three or four thousand automobile companies in the United States. Uh, uh, I had three in my hometown of Norwalk, Ohio, and they made basically one car a day. And a lot of them were carriage makers. They were horse and buggy carriage makers who just switched over and put a, you know, they put a engine on a basically a horse and buggy engine, and you know, and. Uh, everything like it. And actually, in my hometown, there were um, there was a carriage maker whose last name was Fisher, and he had seven sons. And all seven sons left my hometown and moved to Detroit and became Fisher Body, who made all the carriages for General Motors. I think they still do. I think Fisher Body wow. is still Fisher Body. So the automobile industry was really very, very uh, entrepreneurial. It was very, very diversified for the longest period of time, you know, 30 or, 30 or 40 years. Actually in 1910, 40% uh, of all the automobiles in the United States were electric. I remember that, I remember that, yeah, yeah. And, uh... you know, and then, but gasoline just proved to be much more easily available and, uh, you know, yeah, mobile gas stations, mobile, mobile, um, gas stations, and uh, power to weight, the battery tech, all that. Yeah, that was. You could um, use it for you could use it for you know electricity was getting started at the same time. Yeah, and I I, I agree with you completely on this point that it's way too early what to even say what this industry even looks like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, my feeling is one of my predictions. Um, is, is this your first uh, prediction? Are you going to move first your prediction? prediction? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you yeah, got? I, I think the resignation this week of the president of Harvard is just the beginning of a massive uh, earthquake. That's a massive earthquake that's going to go through higher education. 
where uh, for 40 years now, they've been teaching people stuff that has really no marketplace value. Yes. And I don't, I don't think it's so much about, uh, I think that the um, controversy, you know, a lot of it was about, um, you know, uh, anti-Semitism, which, uh, uh, which I think broke open. It was like an earthquake that went through the country. Yeah. You know, th- things got really clarified since October 7th. Yes. You know, and you find out where people were standing on a whole lot of issues. And it came out with, um, you know, um, uh, I have a, a sleep doctor who's uh, just up the road from you. Well, you know, Michael Bruce, you know, Michael. And uh, did I? I thought I introduced you to or did I not? I can't remember. No, no, he was introduced to me by one of my medical medical. Okay. People. Yeah. I've known him for 15 years. He was a client for 15 years, too. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah. Yep. And I said, you know, you know, Michael, this being a member of the chosen people really has some downsides to it. And uh, uh, and anyway, but uh, that the sudden surge of anti-Semitism, which the major universities, notably Harvard and MIT and uh, Penn, uh, didn't handle well because they were put on the spot in front of Congress and um I don't know who their PR firm was, but they were very, very badly, uh, you know. Uh, you we'll, know I mean, we'll put it in the Bud Light category. Uh, yeah, for, well, uh, and, and I would like to say I would add Bud Light that the whole woke culture, uh, which has dominated social media, it's dominated the headlines. Uh, I think it's officially over. Okay. And yes, now it's, it was a grift. I mean, at the end of the day, a grift. It was a mechanism for uh, those who don't know how to create real value to make something up and be able to cancel someone for not agreeing with them and going along with their grift yeah. in a yeah. massive way of stealing resources and money and creating walls of bureaucracy to protect themselves while creating no real yeah. value. And, um, you know, you've always got to say, if you smell politics and bureaucracy piling up a bunch of bricks around something that is effectively worthless, a form of fascism, um, you've got to raise your hand and go, huh, who's stealing? Who's stealing here? So that at the end of the day, that's my summary of it. And I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. So my feeling is that we've seen the end of the growth rate of the uh, higher education. And I think it has a lot to do that this funny business in the universities and college is actually a reaction of fear that they're being bypassed by sources of knowledge that no longer need them. In other words, that yeah. you know, uh, when I was growing up, uh, universities were the authorities on knowledge. Universities, professors were the authorities on knowledge. Specialists and various were the authorities on knowledge. And my sense is, since the internet came in, uh, uh, they've been being bypassed, but artificial intelligence was like the kill shot, you know, and uh, who who needs them anymore? You know, who, who needs them? And uh, what I will tell you this is that 60%, just about 60% of undergraduates in the United States now are women. 
in the uh, graduate schools, it's even higher than 60%. It could be as high as 75%. And they were saying, what's happening to all the men? They're not getting college education. I says, the men are at home looking at their screens and coming up with, uh, and so my sense is that uh, the, the big surge towards higher education is officially over. Yeah. If your kid gets a, does a 10, 10 week welding course, he'll be making 60,000 at the end of the first year. He'll be making a quarter million in five years and he'll never make less. He'll never make less. And he, there will always be a need for him. And my sense is that, and this uh, prediction I'm making right here is that um, as political overtones, because higher education is sen- essentially on one side of the political spectrum. And my sense is that this is coming to an end right now. Okay. But that'll set up a second prediction. Good. Well, I have one. So I'm so glad you set this up because I'll give you mine, which is um, the disruption of non of linear education and the movement towards nonlinear education. And what I mean by that is AI enhanced mentor apprenticeship model which creates instant value. So I'll give you a couple examples. And um, and this is a couple of stack technologies, but I'll, I'll give you the three stacks. One of them is right now, just using current AI tools. And, and that would be, um, I can use ChatGPT. I can learn just enough in real time to do something and create value. And it could be, writing marketing copy. In the case of my son, Zach, um, he assisted me in writing a book, and then he started a business doing audiobooks with the help of AI. And he had his first $10,000 month as a 21-year-old, okay? So, and, and like, I didn't give this to him. I demonstrated and helped him, but I did not do it for him. Um, and I found that I've been able to mentor 20 some year olds. And um, I'm actually committed starting in the fourth quarter of this year to doing training for young people outside of traditional educations, because I like you feel, yes, you could go and learn blue collar skills, but you can also learn white collar skills that are value multipliers, where you can go into a business and assist a business growth without having to necessarily understand and know, but being an interface to this new technology. And uh, when I talk about the apprenticeship mentor that model, that means the AI can be your mentor, you can be the apprentice, but just imagine, and that's something that can be done right now by by learning how to think and speak this new language Mm -hmm. and and create six-figure opportunities as entrepreneurs, and I believe the greatest mechanism, the the international language of peace is entrepreneurship. It's something anyone in any country can speak without having a government, a bureaucracy, or a religion, or a politician involved, other than the theft of your uh, value creation in the form of overtaxation. But that's another story for another time. So the stack to this, though, is Soon, with augmented reality glasses, let's say you learn some skills and look, welding and and doing certain kinds of physical tests, you got to spend some time in the field with a real human uh, mentor apprentice. 
and not cut off your hand or do something stupid that involves, you know, killing someone or yourself. But being able to have real-time repair manuals. So I see like repairing cars, for example, with augmented glasses where this thing knows what you're looking at. Google demonstrated some technology, it's called Gemini, that recognizes objects in real time and says, right now you're looking at um, a squiggle that's turning into a duck or laying in front of you are 10 parts and here's how you can assemble them and put them together where you're, you know, it's basically saying now grab the thing and nope, that one, now put it in this hole and now twist it and turn it, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the level of an increase in smart productivity. Now, I do think that robotics are going to augment um, a lot of work. I mean, Elon's effectively saying there will be like 10 billion robots on the planet. So in other words, more robots than humans soon. And at first I thought that's absurd till I realized the financial model for that. I'm going off on a little tangent here, but I promise I'll bring oh. it all back around is um, imagine if you could lease a robot for less than a human and do the things that are super annoying that no human really wants to do anyway, uh, mm -hmm. like picking vegetables and, and stuff like that. Maybe a lot of people do. I'm not crapping on that business, but let's just say I'm right for a moment. But the whole point is, and then focus on augmented um, capabilities that are more suited for a creative human who can iterate mm -hmm. to more innovation. I mean, that's really, I see a massive proliferation of increased innovation, which again, kind of couples back to my first prediction, but the stack here is disrupting an absolute crap educational system that was politicized and wokeified that we as parents and have lost control over and now being able to make it better and more augmented, but not dependent upon what I consider corrupt, ineffective systems and um, also uh, unions that uh, create no value. I mean, I, if you talk to any teachers, the unions screw them in general, and they're it, it worships status quo or less than that. Well, so again, they're on one side of the political spectrum. So. Yes, you know, I am. Yeah, yeah. That or or they. No, are, no. Uh, the yeah. examples you're giving are uh, like, uh, and my my sense and my uh, other prediction goes along with it. I think that there's going to be a fundamental uh, seismic shift in the makeup of uh, American government uh, starting. It's already starting, but I think it started in you know the '90s with uh, you know with Newt Gingrich. Uh, you know, when they um, took back the Congress. And I think it, it it's the end of the Cold War period. Part of it, there's a big picture here that uh, the U.S. created this amazing global economy uh, base, and basically American taxpayers paid for it. And American workers really paid for it because their jobs went overseas to support this. And that made total sense for the first 35 years because it was to keep the Soviet Union. They didn't want to have American soldiers fighting against the Russians in Europe. You know, basically that's it. 
And the U.S. has reached the point now where they just don't want to see bodies coming back in coffins at all. You know, there's uh, just a distaste for that. Yeah. So, so my sense is that there's going to be a massive political shift. And, uh, you know, I've been following this. And, and first of all, the shift has been taking place. Trump's win in uh, in 2016 was uh, part of part of the shift. And what it is, yeah. it's now a worker class political establishment. And you're seeing that. Yes, it's a in- proletariat movement, just like that really was. That was the vote of the pl- proletariat saying, proletariat. I not heard. You're right. But, but uh, the black voters are shifting, shifting. The Latino voters are shifting. Uh, young people are shifting, you know, and... Um, uh, and after October 7th, you're going to see a large portion of the Jewish population shifting away from the Democrats, who is really the party of the wealthy. They're the party of the billionaires. You know, the, they've become. And this goes on in the states about every, you know, 60 to 70 years. And the New Deal in the 19, uh, this would be 80 years ago, uh, the shift to the Democratic Party as a result of the um, Great Depression, and a lot of other things. A lot of other, there's never one issue that determines a massive political change. But we've watched 40 years of um, uh, higher education, especially elite colleges and elite universities, who aren't producing leaders. They're not producing leaders. They're producing investment bankers. They're producing wealthy lawyers, they're producing wealth, you know, wealthy uh, media people they're producing, but they're not producing anyone who can actually lead the country. And I think that there's an accumulation now, a unity of all people who used to be on opposite sides of the political spectrum, Democrat and Republican, who are now coalescing. coalescing. The names will stay the same. Uh, People say, well, there's going to be a third party. And I said, you ought to read the part of the Constitution that says how the Electoral College works. <laughs> and I said, like Robert Kennedy was that uh, genius, you know, and um, uh, were you there? You were there. Were you there for the? No, I was night- there at the dinner. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was like he was such a fascinating um, historian. And yeah, um, yeah. I think and, that's his greatest gift. And I think he's historical. He's, historic. yeah. he's the last sort of, he's the last vapor in the Kennedy tank, you know, the gas tank. And, yeah. and you know, okay. and uh, I found him a very uh, forthright person. I found him a very, you know, and he talks about his own issues and what it's like to have uh, a famous father and a famous uncle be assassinated. And I still think he feels that the truth about those two assassinations has been covered up. And I think that that's the real bone that he has to pick is that it's been covered up. And, uh, you know, that's his thing. You know, that's his thing. He, yeah. talked, about, he talked about his addictions and he talked about mm-hmm. everything else. Uh, but my sense is that he would have been the perfect uh, a political candidate, presidential candidate for America that no longer exists. And um, uh, and my sense is that he can, I think in the November election, because he is running, he's an independent, so he will be on the ballot. And uh, my sense is that uh, uh, he could take 
five to seven percent of the popular vote. Okay. Yeah. And and I was I know I was talking to a client who said, uh, you know, uh, you know, he could he could really go places. I said, you have to understand how the electoral college works. He could get thirty percent of the popular vote and not take one electoral vote. Uh, Ross Perot in uh, 1992 elections, he took 26% of the vote. He, yeah. didn't get one, he didn't get one electoral vote, but yep. he gave the election to one of the candidates. He gave election to one of the parties. Which could definitely happen here, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think, but my sense is that it's much bigger than just the shifting kind of election from one party to the other. I think this is a ma massive change. And I think, uh, uh, I don't like using the word proletariat because it's a communist word, but yes. it's, a, it's a working class. It's a working yeah. class. Okay. Because yeah. two, two thirds of the voters yes. uh, don't have college degrees. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think 37 percent yeah of Americans have college degrees. And uh, these are people who don't have college degrees, but they actually know how to do things. They, you know, um, you know, uh, they, uh, you know, people with graduate degrees from university know how to change the world, but they don't know how to change a tire. Yeah, there's a, uh, there was a fantastic South Park episode that came out. Oh, I love South Park these oh days. Oh my God, did you see the one about uh, the, basically how the handymen became the new class of billionaires and all the middle, uh, all the white collar workers ended up working out and, and trying to trade accounting uh, at Home Depot. So someone would come fix their stove. It's, yeah. It was freaking genius. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. South Park, I, South Park really has a finger on the pulse. Yeah. You know, yeah. And some, some issues. But uh, so my yeah. sense is that this is going to be a massive change. You know, and the people who most speak for the working class are going to be uh, elected in November. Okay. I, I, I think uh, the there is fascinating momentum and I, I cannot wait. This is sort of like I'm not a guy who watches sports, but I'm following this sports game um, because it's one of the greatest shifts in psychology that's been bound to happen for a long yeah. time. So yeah, and it's a it's a function of forty years of technological change and communications change and uh, and everything. But my my sense is that all the people who are out of touch, they're like the royalty before the French Revolution. They're like the 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 people around the czar before the russian revolution and this is a seismic shift i mean this is a earthquake uh this is an earthquake and uh and you know and my sense it will continue i mean each election after this election it will continue and i think that uh, the president of the united states now uh was elected because he really represents the thinking capabilities of his party well, I couldn't agree more. And I have, um, as usual, um, I, I had to take a note note for myself. I have another prediction that stacks nicely on top of this one. Um, okay, this is your number three. I think so. Did we do two already? Yeah, I've done two. Okay, good. I did, I did higher education and political earthquake. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you did earthquake. Okay, good. So I'm going to stack the political earthquake and raise you 
uh, the new world of real time. So here's the political one. Imagine an election when the two debaters or a panel of debaters are all fact-checked in real time with historical data on a real-time lyometer. So you cannot BS any longer. And you can't just reframe political garbage, all right? Which is why there have been some who've said this is and will be the last human election because AI can augment, um, we'll call it historical facts and truth, or even weigh what would be considered the most truthy of data. So that's not my prediction. I just think that is a byproduct of what's happening. So um, I believe we are entering the world of true real-time integrated multilingual everything. And how's that going to affect us? So um, I'm going to give you a uh, an example of something my teams have been building. So I've shifted our, our energy now, and I've actually brought on a development group doing AI stuff. And we're building a platform right now for one of our clients that trains and teaches and certifies people. You're talking about humans, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So the the AI component basically smart humans, you know, you still uh, I still have a there's a big future for smart I, humans. I'm with you uh, again. I I believe in a in a better, more abundant, exponential future for humans. I'm still like I say, well, some, optimist. Some, some humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. There is going to be some prehistoric times coming up here, or uh, rapid. Uh, mm-hmm. Well. Devolution Devo is uh, coming back, but um, I, I have a couple real time examples. So, you know, when I use the other one about the shift in education to the disruptive nonlinear, um, that also means multilingual. So, as an example, uh, one of our clients were loading up all their knowledge, all their wisdom. So now you can have this real time chatbot that talks to you and teaches you with multiple channels simultaneously in multiple languages. So the first release is, yep, English and Spanish and French. And the tech is about eh, this far away, like months away from being able to produce real-time made-for-you video in whatever language you speak, giving you just what you need and what you looked looked for. Again, no more linearity. But... What that also means um, is in the case of, let's say, real-time fact-checking politics, that is just-in-time, made-for-you, contextually relevant and aware information. Get more clients, grow your business with better marketing and messaging, make more money and get a better life with more freedom of time, money, relationship, and impact. Learn more about our three-day, one-on-one, done-with-you reinvention workshop. Visit connecttomike.com to book a conversation with me right now. All right, back to the episode. One other tool we built, which I can't wait to uh, give to you, is this, this thing that <clears throat> it's a, it's an AI marketing bot. And basically, here's how it works, Dan, is uh, you go up, and I'll put a link inside our, our, our uh, show notes, but you talk to a bot and it says, 
hey, uh, what's your name? What's your contact information? And it effectively asks you the equivalent of DOS. And it says, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's the, you know, if we were meeting a year from today, it's effectively asking the Dan Sullivan question, what needs to happen? And then DOS, DOS issues, the DOS, right? What's preventing you? <clears throat> what opportunities do you want to take advantage of? And ultimately it asks you, um, what I always say is if you could spend 99% of your time doing what you or your organization is best at, what would it be if everything else were taken away? And then what this does is it produces a customized report for you. It creates an audio report, a video. In this case, it'd be imagine um, virtual Dan um, talking to you, contextually relevant. It looks you up and first it also make sure that you are a qualified lead. And so it, it's doing um, client or data enrichment. And then it looks you up on, on LinkedIn for your history to learn more about you. So it talks about your current world and your future world. And then it builds a custom report that it also emails to you. Soon it will WhatsApp you. The reason why WhatsApp is important is because text marketing and email marketing don't have 100% deliverability, but right now WhatsApp does, and it's international. So I can send you an audio, a video, and a PDF. Mm -hmm. And the <clears throat> point is, imagine being able to deliver uh, 10x is better than 2x or any of your books made for a person in near real time. So contextually relevant, just in time, message appropriate for the person in any language. And, you know, now you don't have to go through the complexity of making your offer relevant to someone or your education relevant because it is. And um, <clears throat> I think just imagine what the real time multiplier world is going to look like when it's just in time, just for you and accurate yeah but let, let me ask you a question about that um sure. because um i read um article very interesting uh, i'll dig it up and uh, i'll have it available to you for a future podcast and they're finding that the human brain is unlike any other animal brain in the world and that all, almost all animal brains have a one channel. They have a one channel. Uh, they take in information and they send uh -huh. through one channel. Yep. But every uh, human being has multiple channels in their brain that uh, it varies where the information, it goes through this channel, goes through this channel, goes through this channel. And a lot of it has to do with stimulation. Okay. And, and they said that the already in the you know when the the baby is a fetus the brain is developing differently because twins for example will develop different brains okay i mean genetically their uh identical twins are are clones uh, they're exactly the same but the way their brains develop uh, starts differentiating right from the beginning okay and my sense is the complexity of this is way beyond being analyzed, the complexity of each individual. And I, I think that's why our concept of unique ability works so well 
Yeah. Because we're recognizing the basic fact that every human being uh, creates meaning. I, I don't say they process information differently because I don't think we're information processors. I think we're meaning makers. I, I agree completely. You're right. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. The inequality between meaning makers and human beings is vastly different. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you're one of my inputs. Okay. So uh, between podcasts with you, uh, I don't have to take any interest in where AI is going because I know you're doing it. So what I've done is I've said, I don't even have to develop this pathway in my brain. I just have to spend a couple hours with Mike every couple weeks uh, to do it because I get it. Okay. Well, I'm just one example of 8 billion human beings. You know, I'm just one example. And I have particular interests and I'm developing particular things. But the other thing is I have an aspiration to understand things that other people are experts at, but I don't want to know what they know. I just want them to tell me why it would be useful for me. That, um, yeah. so I want to I'm just, I'm just, put, yeah. I'm just putting, I'm just putting this up yeah. and my sense, no matter how good AI is, it doesn't actually know what's going on in your brain. You're right. It um, doesn't know how you programmed your brain. I mean, there's a yes. And a, but here's, here's my, I'm going to, I'm going to end it because, uh, this is really interesting. I've used it, um, when I do a little stage presentation. So this is not about information processing, but it's getting close, which is, um, <clears throat> recently they've connected fMRI machines to humans. And in this particular case, a person looks at a picture of a giraffe or a real giraffe, and then this device reads it and then using a version of GP, of a GPT, it analyzes that and it looks at the data stored in the brain and makes a picture of a giraffe. Because objects, which is how the the brain, just like AIs, you know, this is what's weird is um, the large language model is storing data in a very human-like way. And what they've learned is um, an image of a dog detected with an MRI looks the same in Japanese, English, and Spanish. They're objects. It's stored that way. Just like I would say fractals in the universe, and there's to talk about what a holographic universe is. You know, it's ultimately it's signals, it's data. And so um, I agree with you that you know, the difference between meaning and the difference between processing data is that of interpretation and storytelling and the ability, in a way, what you're dependent upon with me and I am on you is your interpretation and giving something meaning that is a combination of emotion. It's like concentrated, you know, it's like we get together because we learn so much more through a dialogue and a conversation not through I'm showing you a picture of my doggy picture and you're showing me a picture of your doggy picture. It's contextually relevant. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've thought about this a lot, but I haven't arrived at some gigantic yeah. conclusion other than like when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone in 2007 and says it's an internet, it's an iPod, it's an internet communications device and a phone. And everyone thought it was three things. 
And he says, no, do you get it? Do you get it? And suddenly the world changed yeah. and the app store was born not that much later. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now is our interpretation of the universe is shifting as these new technology stacks are coming alive and we're applying these. And um, yeah. well, when you say our, again, it's individual human beings interpretation is um, yeah. Uh, yeah, is changing. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. My sense, you know, uh, I remember when I went to the very first um, meeting of that what became Abundance 360. Mm -hmm. It was at, uh, um, it was in Silicon Valley uh, on Moffett Field at the Singularity uh, headquarters. And uh, Ray Kurzweil was talking and he said, um, um, you know, within, you know, a foreseeable future, the uh, computing power uh, of um, of computers, uh, computers is going to exceed human intelligence. And so I went up to him at the break and I said, are you talking about consciousness? Okay. And he said, nobody knows what consciousness is. Well, I said, I think it's got something to do with human intelligence actually and uh, one thing i followed mike since there's been an internet is breakthroughs and understanding consciousness and you know how much progress there's been in the last 30 years yeah yeah we just don't know we have no conscience so if you you don't even know what it is and i think it's a fundamental part of human intelligence mm -hmm. but i don't think it's a function of calculation i think it's something else is going on Mm -hmm. I don't think humans are computers. I don't. I don't think the human brain is a computing brain. Mm -hmm. I think it's a connecting brain. It just connects. Yeah. It just randomly connects all sorts of things and then puts a couple of things together. And you know, Steve Jobs himself kind of. I'm starting my next book next uh, next week. Um, so I just wrapped this one up, and we're starting really, really early. And it's called uh, "Everything Is Created Backwards." Mm. Mm. So I'll use you as an example. Mm -hmm. You're able to do. You're able to do with artificial intelligence today, as a result of what Mike Koenigs has been up to for the last thirty years in technology and uh, you know networks and marketing uh, and marketing. And you're putting them all together in a in a really unique way you're putting them you know uh really together and i i know that my brain doesn't operate in your direction you know you know i'm kind of interested in a whole bunch of other things and you find my things interesting and i find your things interesting so <laughs> you know we were able we were able to connect and you say oh I, i'm not going to think about that i'm going to just ask dan what he thinks about that yeah and like I'm passionate about politics, you know, I'm yeah. passionate. And you know, you know, that, uh, you know, to get the latest update on what Dan thinks is useful, you know. And um, and so my, my sense is that it's still human and human coming together and you're using all sorts of tools. And, um, you know, uh, our team, you know, all of our team is using AI in some way, you know, they're using tools and everything like that 
And I can tell we had a team meeting on Wednesday and I could tell how optimistic our team is, you know, and uh, but they're just doing things that uh, will save them time, save them effort, you know, and they're really interested in this stuff. And uh, I said, you know, all, all we have to do is up our product overall productivity about 10% per year company wide and it compounds it compounds right so my, my my sense is that it's not predictable where any of this stuff is going and you and i are more up to date with a lot of breakthrough stuff than most people but what if people have no ambition so Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what if they have no aspirations? Okay, I don't think a, a huge amount of new data is going to make any difference to their ambition or their aspirations. That's, I think that that lies. Yeah. I think that's a consciousness realm. Oh, so I want to give you a statistic. Yeah, and, uh, and this will be a third one for me. Okay, and my third one. So you had three, and I have three. And that is John Bowen and I have a, uh, you know, a free zone collaboration and John bought a survey company and we sent out, uh, we, uh, uh, they designed the survey and then they asked us, uh, if we were to have strategic coach clients respond to the survey, what other questions should we be asking them? And I gave them a whole list of other questions like, you know, what are you doing with your free time? How much free time do you, you know, coach stuff, you know, so I gave them an agenda and they had, you know, they couldn't include all my questions because there's only so much you can put in a survey, but the survey came back and I'll just give you one category that came back. Uh, what is your life expectations, uh, lifetime expectations? It was a question and they had four categories. They had current strategic coach clients and they had, um, people who have been in the program but are not in the program now and we had 800 responded to the survey wow and then he had his base and he had 1200 okay and he had two kinds he had a panel a specially chosen panel of about 100 people and then he had about 1100 people who were general public so they asked by lifetime expectation uh 60 to 70, 70 to 80, 80 to 90, 90 to 100, 100. I took the survey, so yeah. yeah. 100, uh, 110, uh, and uh, 110 and beyond. So his panel, 5% of them uh, expected to live more than 110, 110 years. His general public, uh, you know, the general uh, body was 1% expected to live beyond 110. With strategic coach, 34%, 34% expected to live beyond 110. And of the out clients, 22% of them expected to live about 110. And he said, I said, they've never seen such a strange disparity of people who live to be, you know, what their lifetime is. And I said, well, it's the first question of the program. Uh, when anybody starts the program, the first question they get is, at what age are you going to die? <laughs> yeah, it just goes to show what great framing, great storytelling, great mindset does yeah. in creating a common conversation, right? 
with an outcome that can actually be affected with resources, tools, you know, that is the currency. Well, so, well yeah. my feeling is the interest in all the medical stuff we've been talking about, you know, is disproportionately on the side, the interest is people who uh, not only expect to live a long time, but have aspirations for living a, a longer, more productive, more creative life. And uh, so my sense is that's just a survey and that's just a survey question. Okay, so that's just one. The other thing is coach clients have way more work, far fewer hours and have higher revenues and higher uh, wealth. They have higher wealth. And the other thing is that for the most part, they're not multi-generational entrepreneurs. The vast majority of them are founders. Okay? Yes, for sure. And, uh, and ours compared to the general population or second generation, third generation. We have some, but not many. Okay. And if there's going to be multi-generation, it's going to be the children of our entrepreneurs who are maybe having children in their own company. So this is my third one is that um, the greatest inequality in human population, and I'll talk about the United States mainly here, and what I would call the tech rich, the rich tech countries. United States is a rich tech country. Canada is a rich tech uh, country. And then you have UK, you have Australia, you have New Zealand, you have Scandinavian countries. Um, um, and that people who are immersed in technology and have been their whole life <clears throat> just easily deal with technological concepts. They, de they deal with new technological breakthroughs. And they're uh, uh, there is interest in, in, in technology is what's the weather going to be tomorrow, you know, and everything like that. <clears throat> so we've lived our whole lives, you more than I, in uh, totally a technological water. We, we, we're the fish that swim in the technological water. <clears throat> and uh, I'll bring up a topic, and it was Gordon Moore, who, uh, who is credited with Moore's Law. <clears throat> and near the end of his life, he was interviewed. And he said, this is a real law, isn't it? Or, uh, somebody said, well, you, you've created Moore's Law, and that's really the law that determines technological development. And he says, well, it's not really a law. He said, it's not a law. He says, I only had three data points when I made, he said, I didn't make a prediction. I just made an observation. <clears throat> and I asked a question. And I said, Three data points. So the first data point to the second data point, the number, <clears throat> the the uh, the power of computerization increased by twice. Okay, and the cost of the computerization went in half. So it's like a four times four times return. And he said, and I didn't think anything of it, but when I had a third data point, and they were about two years apart. You know, and he came out with this in 1965, very famous article. And he said, I just wonder if this continues. He didn't make a prediction. He just said, I got two data points. I just wonder if this continues. And the, the article didn't go anywhere, really, for about five years. And then all of a sudden, that took off. And they started calling it Moore's Law. Moore's Law, every two years, 18 months, whatever it is. Uh, the uh, the microchip, uh, the amount of computing that we can put in will double 
and the costs. And everybody said, well, this is the future. And he says, it's not about technology. It's about aspiration. He said what the thing called Moore's Law did, it funneled and channeled and focused everybody's aspiration. And then it gave them a means for measuring their progress towards their aspiration. And so my sense is humans are strictly aspirational creatures. You know, we're, we're totally aspirational creatures and our each of our individual brains creates totally different aspirations. And I think it's not analyzable. I got to meditate on that one because I'm going a million different directions. But my overall <clears throat> sense is first of all this is all comes back to create crafting and creating an inspirational movement story yeah right and what i was experiencing as you were telling that story is what is the next inspirational story that has not yet been told that will completely shift our consciousness, our awareness, or our aspirations, or inspirations, or our motivations, right? That That is and could be one of the greatest um, opportunities of our lifetimes. And, um, you know, it's like, what does that movie look like? What does that story look like? And I love the way I feel when I think about it. So I will say my reaction is I love the way I feel when I experience what you're talking about. And I've never thought about it through this frame before. So um, no, no, I'm just going back to Gordon Moore, who's certainly one of the pioneers. I mean, before Steve Jobs. Yeah. Before, you know, they, this is when he was at um, Fairchild Semiconductor, you know, he was, you know, and um, he, um, you know, Robert Noyce and, you know, a whole bunch of people put together the makings, you know, in Orange Grove, you know, Orange Grove country in uh, San Francisco, California. But his whole point was, it's just a way of thinking. He says, uh, the the doubling every two years, he said, and then people say, well, good, we have a yardstick and we have a, something to shoot for. And, you know, and and then the stock market got involved you know, and uh, everything. But my sense is, you know, we had a very early uh, podcast, one of our very early podcasts, where I said that uh, the the big reason why Christianity changed the world, uh, because it gave people two lifetimes, okay? And it allowed, allowed them to make sense of the inequality of their present lifetime because there was going to be a payback lifetime yeah. in the future. Yeah. When bonus uh, life. When the emperor was uh, taking my bags to the room, you know, <laughs> even if he was in the same hotel, you know. And my sense is that every once in a while there's an idea which catalyzes a lot of other thoughts, and I think that Moore's law was a very catalyzing thought. Okay. And it's not that the average person even knows what Moore's law is, you know, and the people who talk about Moore's law don't even know what it is, you know, but it's a way of talking about a sudden shift in what people could aspire to. Okay. And your story about your son, uh, you know, your, um, who's doing making 10,000, 10,000 a month doing audio books. <clears throat> 
telling that story gives inspiration. And uh, Jeff Madoff and I had a great podcast on where we talked about we the the similarity between Trump and Taylor Swift. <clears throat> and I was in Argentina when Taylor Swift was staying at the same hotel. And uh, the Swifties were outside the hotel and the hotel had barricades up. So the Swifties, you know, the Swifties couldn't come in. They couldn't come in the lobby. They couldn't interfere with guests, you know, and people were good about it. I mean, there was no you know, there was no disruptions or anything else. And uh, Babs went over and talked to some of them. They were making their bead bracelets, their uh, their Taylor Swift bracelets. And one of them was making 300 because at the concert she was going to give, she was going to all the concerts and she was going to give out 300 bracelets and, um, and uh, you know, receive 300 ba- uh, bracelets in return with people's contact information. Wow. And I said, and I said, uh, I, Taylor Swift's music is not really my music. I'm a '50s and '60s guy, you know, and uh, you know, I'm more into Roy Orbison and Nat King Cole, and you know, other things. But everybody's got their own music, you know. They've, uh, and uh, so I was just sitting there and I was watching Babs, and she was talking to the Swifties, who were mainly teenagers, and. Uh, and I was saying, you know what she's done? She's given them a framework to approach their lives. She's, she's supplied an organizing principle for them. And they feel they're part of something, they're participating in something really big, okay? And I felt that way about Trump right from the beginning. He's creating a framework where people are feeling that they can, and he even named it. He, he already had the name for it, you know, the MAGA, you know, and everything yeah. like that. And I said, you can't compete with a movement. I mean, if you're, you're you're approaching politics and they say, well, the polls say this, it's not about the polls. It's a basically, what are people saying day to day over the back fence? What are they saying? You know, what are they saying? And my sense is that um, uh, what artificial intelligence is, uh, you know, just to relate to, um, uh, several of the predictions that you made. My sense is that there are individuals who can kind of represent the combined impact of people's aspirations better than others, better than others. And I think that Taylor Swift is a unique individual in that respect. I think she's catalyzed the aspirations of millions and millions and millions of people. And, uh, you know, and, uh, but I think she's been at it for her whole life. There was a story about her when she was 11 years old. She went yes. to Nash- Nashville and she had her discs and she went from studio to studio and gave out her discs. OK, so she's been uniquely on this track for several decades. I mean, she's in her 30s, but she's been on the track maybe when she was six years old. I don't know. Yeah, but she started. Sense, mm-hmm. Yeah, but she was not predictable. And I don't think Trump was predictable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With regards to that, I uh, I think her business did like over $4 billion this last year. Um, insane volumes of cash, which is only a measure- measuring stick, which, which um, I watched her not long ago on Tiny Desk Concert, which NPR produces, which is, it's, 
I like it because you really get a sense of the personality of the performer. They do a great job because it's a little tiny environment and it's mostly acoustic and there is an audience there. And um, the way she communicated and treated the people um, with genuine care and respect, oh, yeah. um, like she's a great listener and um I'm with you. Like, I don't find her particularly interesting other than as a phenom, you know, as a very, very unique byproduct of this era doing the right thing at the right time for the right people. And, you know, when I listen to her, I can't stand listening to her talk because every other word is like, 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 like. It's that super annoying, like, oh, valley girl. She's a valley girl. It's just (laughs) I just like my brain breaks. And have an enormous amount of deep respect because she's arguably one of the greatest entrepreneurs of our time, not to mention uh, entertainer entrepreneurs. Yeah. Who has a Trump is too. Trump is approaching politics from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was an entrepreneur. I mean, he was an entrepreneur before he became elected. you know, yeah. president, but he's just treating the White House and uh, being president of the United States as an entrepreneurial stage. activity. It's a stage. It's a storytelling opportunity. <laughs> and I, I yeah. think your distinction of packaging, which is ultimately packaging and positioning and messaging uh, a movement, an aspirational movement, um, I would just suggest that I'm going to give this some meditative thought because yeah, I believe yeah. that this could in fact be one of our greatest podcast opportunities of the future, which is how do we combine and package a movement? Um, well, and well, yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it's mysterious and I think it it's is. mysterious. That's, that's it's just yeah, as much know, a religious um, no, no. I think I think it's to- I think it's totally mysterious. It's just that uh, today, with the technology that's available, uh, you can influence billions really, really quickly. And I think that uh, is a totally different thing. And I'll just tell you a story, and it's about one of our clients. It's Stephen Poulter, who's an IVF doctor. I love him. He's such a great guy. Yeah. IVF doctor in vitro fertilization. He helps other men's wives get pregnant. Okay. And uh, uh, he's rated, and this is U.S. government statistics, uh, that in the United States, in every clinic that does IVF uh, implants, you have to log, you have to register every implant with the U.S. government. And they issue a scorecard every six months saying not not the individual doctors, but which clinics have the highest success rate. And for the last 10 years, he's been in the and the U.S. is the only country that does this. So it's uh, uh, but he, he I is, did not know any of this. This is fascinating. And he's yeah. in the, he's in the you know, he's close to 80 percent on first implant. And this is for 35 to 39 years old. That's what they look at on. The industry average is around 37%. He's at 80%. So anyway, as a result of FreeZone and getting involved with Mark LaChance, who does TikTok, uh, um, you know, TikTok programs, it shows people how to do TikTok programs. 
Peter, uh, Stephen has really become a star on TikTok. Okay, so we were in New York three weeks ago. That was our um, connecting call. Uh, you know, our connecting flight was from JFK to Buenos Aires. And we had about a six hour um, break. And so they live about a half hour from JFK. So we went into Queens and we had lunch with uh, Stephen, uh, uh, Stephen and Michelle. And he was telling us that morning that he had he didn't have time, but he tries to do a TikTok every every day. And he did a TikTok. He said it was just off the top, and you know he shows the most exp uh, explicitly sexual films of what happens when a sperm meets an egg. You know, <laughs> you know it kind of, it kind of shows it. And he had this big picture, so he did it. And then he was looking at his uh, phone. While we're watching, he says, "Oh my God!" He says, "I just had, I just had twenty-five thousand downloads of this in the last fifteen minutes." And then we went through it, and at the hour, he says, "In the last since we've been at lunch, I've had two hundred and fifty thousand downloads." So that was three weeks ago. Astonishing. And, yeah. and this last weekend, uh, he got a report from TikTok that he was now at nine hundred and thirty million downloads for this. Yeah, and that's other media like uh, Instagram and everybody else picking it up. He was he was now approaching, and by my Monday, I mean he'll be in ten times on Monday with you. He may have crossed a billion for one TikTok episode. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And that tells you the kind of world we're in. But the reason is that he's very authoritative, and he's. Um, uh, he started because somebody sent him some information that was just rubbish about how pregnancy happens and everything else. And he got really irate and he just went on TikTok. And he says, look, there are, people are saying this and this just, it just went instant. It just went instant across the universe, the social media universe. And now he's done, you know, I, I don't know if he's done a thousand, twelve hundred TikTok and he's this raving star in the world. It's and uh, because there's just so much uh, non-information, you know, uh, misinformation, you know, just weird sayings, and he just corrects them. You know, he corrects them. So uh, anyway, it's uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon. But if you had not, you, well, you've known Stephen for a long time, yeah. And uh, can you imagine Stephen, who's you know, he's a you know, he's a He's a doctor, you know, he's a scientist. And the word TikTok and the scientists being together, you say, yeah, uh, my, my brain can't even contain those two thoughts <laughs> at the same time. But he's got the perfect personality for it. He knows a lot about technology, but he knows how to get across really, really pungent information in a very very entertaining very informative educational kind of way and they're only 60 seconds they're 90 seconds you know that's really straightforward and he's got all sorts of great backgrounds with films and everything you know and um it's the birds and the bees in the 21st century yeah well he's um you know the unlikely hero while you were telling that story i was thinking to myself i have a great name for a TV show, it's called "Let's Knock Up Your Wife." What do you think of that? No, it's uh, but uh, it'd be like whoa. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I, it's. He, but my he, sense, he stum crazy. he stumbled on. 
guys. He's yeah. stumbled on this. It's yeah. time, timing it just, is everything and the content and, and the pain is so real. And, you know, he's the perfect, he is the perfect character for the perfect, yeah. for that platform. Um, yeah. But nobody could have, uh, no, no marketing guy said, what we got to get is a doctor who looks like this and he talks like this and we're going to create, it didn't work. It happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, he's it perfect happened, for it. It happened spontaneously. You know, and uh, the real reason why he was kind of angry at the misinformation, you know, and uh, it's, it's the guy who got, you know, the guy who created Netflix, he got charged for a late return on his blockchain or yeah. his uh, blockbuster, his blockbuster. Yeah. And he was so pissed off that he says, you know, I, I got, there's got to be another way to do this. You know, I got yeah. uh, yeah. Well, it's it's like getting pissed off enough to start a movement that became a business well, or a business well, became a movement. Well, he wasn't intending to create a movement. He just. Yeah. I think yeah. the movement's a byproduct of. Well, I think the, the, uh, yeah. I, I think the movement is a mysterious miracle and always will be. I love it. Well, um, I will say that when we're getting to the end of the episode about predictions, I never expected us to be talking about uh, IVF and TikTok, but, um, and, and movements the way we did. But I do think that it's a perfect place to put a, a punctuation here because the best predictions do become uh, movements. And I think that was our intent getting into this is how can we make sure that this is, uh, is real and is valid 10 years from now is when it comes out of our mouths. Yeah. How's yeah. that? Well, yeah. I mean, try to predict where any of our podcasts are going to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best part of it. They're mysterious. So, uh, well, let's wrap this one up. How do you want to wrap this one up, Dan? Uh, anything you want to add before we uh, put a put an end on this? And then we do the beginning of the podcast at the end of it, like we always do? Well, I think the other thing is that we should revisit this a year from today. Totally. Yeah. We said, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, I'm I'm willing to be held accountable for my, for my predictions, um, you know, and, you know, and um, and I mean, it's the future is all guesses and bets. So, you know, and um, so um I don't think that there's any inevitability, but of what I'm talking, but I'm just picking up on, you know, I'm just, I'm just picking on which way I see the tide going in three or four areas and you are too. Well, that plus it'll be after an election, which will be even more fascinating because yeah. I anticipate we are going to see some crazy unknowns getting pulled out of thin air um, which will be exciting as well. So I think just the, how all this stuff's going to affect media and yeah. perception and who knows what kind of movement might be created um, be, between now and then. So uh, uh, one thing now I, I will say about the next election, uh, Trump during the, this entire period when they're going into the primaries just ignores his competitors and I think when we get to uh, two months, you know, they're going to want to have debates on TV. And he said, I don't need any debates. He says, I'm just going to bypass your debates because debates are an old form. 
which is essentially what he did, uh, the way he used uh, the media then and television then and social media. And he'll be in so, all the news because he's avoiding the debates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just how, another how dare, how dare. Uh, he's a dictator. He's like Hitler. You know, yeah. he's like Hitler. And then, Better not say that. Better not say that. <laughs> God wins law. Do you know God wins law? Yeah. No. Uh, God wins law is in a debate. The first person who says the word Nazi or Hitler just lost the debate. <laughs> right, right. And unfortunately, we'll have to beep, beep that out or we'll probably get uh, slaughtered by YouTube. But yeah. uh, we'll leave it in in uh, in, in uh, iTunes. Thank God they don't do any... Uh, any of that but yes i um this is let's i'm looking forward to the funnest and most interesting year ever and oh, it's yeah. be this year yeah yeah all you right should do, uh, i have a free zone connector tomorrow and the uh new exercise is called your best year ever 2024 so awesome me, well this is very timely and i'm gonna be there so um oh. let's Let's officially wrap this up. So this has been our predictions for 2024. I had a barrel of monkey fun. And hey, uh, I can't wait for the next one. And uh, make sure you share this with other people who might want to know what Dan thinks of the future and what's going to happen next. So let's wrap this one up. And Mike too. <laughs>